standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the standard issue pod scene. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and if you've been paying close attention you'll know we are having a few weeks off from the Bush Telegraph because reasons and if you've really been paying attention you'll know that one of those reasons is that our Mick got married last week. So while I'd ordinarily be giving you my feelings on that sentient lost property box Dominic Cummings, we've been doing other way more enjoyable and wholesome things instead. Mickey, Gary, if you're listening, and I kind of hope you're not, given that you've just got married and I've just mentioned Dominic Cummings and your nuptials in the same sentence, congratulations! That doesn't mean we haven't got some fun stuff for you this week. And some double negatives, clearly. Jen's been on the blower to best-selling author Victoria Hislop to chat about her new children's book, Maria's Island. I've been talking to the City of London Corporation's Wendy Hyde and historian Virginia Rounding about the Celebrating City Women initiative. Plus, it's granddad's favourite, Maureen O'Hara. That's literally in the case of my granddad. Plus, double Hayley Mills as we watch 1961's The Parent Trap in rated or dated. Keep love alive, people. Or, you know, something along those lines. I am joined on the phone by international best-selling author, Victoria Hislop. Hello. Hello, Jen. Thanks very much for joining us today. You are joining me to discuss your new book, Maria's Island, which is your first ever children's book. What's kind of interesting about this book particularly is that you've returned to your best-selling book, The Island, for this, and you're telling the story of Maria Petrakis, one of the children from the original book. So I thought it might be useful just to start off with if you could give us a little bit of background to the the book that preceded this, The Island, and also tell us a little bit about what Maria's Island is about. The Island, the title, is an island where leprosy patients were sent for 50 years at the beginning of the 20th century, um, just off the coast of Crete, because that, in around 1903, internationally, it was understood by all the scientists for the first time that people with leprosy needed to go somewhere to be isolated so that they didn't infect other members of their community. So all over the world, these leprosy hospitals, asylums, you know, different names in different countries were set up. And of course, in Greece, because there are so many islands, an island was you know, regarded as the absolutely sort of ideal environment to send people. And my novel about the island really covers the last 20 years um, before a cure was found. So it sort of begins in the 30s and ends in the late 50s. Because for, for millennia, people hadn't understood leprosy. They'd regarded it as a curse from God. You know, that was a sort of biblical explanation for why somebody would have leprosy that they in some way offended the big man in the sky and fortunately at the end of the 19th century in 1898 specifically a Norwegian doctor discovered under a microscope for the very first time the leprosy bacteria so hey presto 
almost from one year to the next. They said, it's a bacterial disease. It's not a curse from God. So this was a sort of wonderful moment on a human level for leprosy patients that they weren't considered you know, outcasts for having done something evil. They were unfortunate people who'd caught something like you or I might catch the common cold. So the island I wrote focusing on one particular family because the very um, unusual thing about Spinalonga, which is the name of the leprosy hospital, is that it's just a few hundred yards off the mainland of Crete. So you could see people with the naked eye wandering about who were basically condemned for the rest of their lives to be isolated in this place. But from the village opposite, you could just about see them. So my story, and it's a completely fictional story, is about a family where, first of all, the mother um, contracts leprosy and has to leave, and, and leaving behind her two daughters, Anna and Maria, and her husband, George. So it's that kind of extraordinary sense of being so near and yet so far. And then in the second half of the book, when the mother, Eleni, has died of, of leprosy um, after some years on Spinalonga, then one of the daughters, Maria, also discovers that she has leprosy. So she goes off to Spinalonga as well. So it's it sounds like a tragic story, and in, in, there are elements of tragedy in it. But for Maria, she is fortunate enough to be alive when the therapy, the cure... Um, is found. And actually, although I say the story is completely fictional, the science of, you know, the leprosy and the leprosy cure is accurate. And in 1957, um, for the first time after probably about a decade of really serious work and experimentation and discovery of what could cure it, everybody with leprosy was able to leave Spinalonga because they were no longer infectious. And from 1957 up to now, that is still the treatment that's that's used. So that's the story of the island. It came, well, I had the idea for it 20 years ago, and it came out, I suppose, 15 years ago. And about two years ago, because I spend a lot of time in Crete now, a school teacher out in Crete said to me one day, we were literally having lunch, and she said to me, I'd so love to read The Island, you know, your adult novel, to my pupils, but it's it's too adult, you know, although it has the themes of, you know, stigma, isolation, loss, you know, all these things that actually many children's books are full of, you know, as I kind of been rediscovering lately a lot of children's books deal with you know the themes of life and death and what it is to be human and and all the toughest things that you can find between the covers of a book so children can deal with those but actually the way it was written was very much you know not for children so it, it literally got me thinking that day and I thought I think I could write a children's version of the island and 
that's Maria's Island. That's how it came about. It's been a longer a real place and it really was somewhere where people with leprosy mm. were sent to. And it's been longer is a, a real, very much a real place. And it's a place that you can go on a little trip from the mainland of Crete. Dozens of boats leave every day. It's actually an archaeological um, monument mm. now. And it's sort of visited like, you know, Knossos in Crete is visited. People go to Spinalonga to sort of not only see the remains of what was the leprosy hospital, but it was also a Venetian colony. And then the Turks lived there during the time of the Ottoman Empire. So it's a kind of architectural and sure. historical. And it's a tiny island. It takes, gosh, to walk all the way around the whole circumference takes maximum of 45 minutes wow, okay. is, but at any one time there were usually four or 400 people there you know it's, it's an extraordinary place with dilapidated houses and a derelict hospital and some churches there's usually a couple of cats wandering around and it's it literally feels as though the people who were living there have just popped out for the afternoon um, because it still has this very, for me anyway, a very kind of live atmosphere. And you can see how they lived really and where they lived. You know, there are little shops even in the little high street. So, you know, it's got the basic ingredients of, of any small village in Greece, you know, and it occupies it's sort of in the middle of a bay. So it's it's, it's strangely picturesque. And yet your head is telling you that for years people, you know, suffered there. Mm. So it's kind of this strange, paradoxical place. Yeah, because in the in Maria's Island, obviously her mother, Eleni, and her best friend, Dimitri, uh, end up on the island because they've both contracted leprosy. And it's so cruel you know it feels so cruel that they're sort of snatched away from their families but then they go and live there mm. and they kind of that sort of feels like they have quite a nice life there in some ways like pretty yeah. pretty I normal mean, that's why you know i think when i was initially doing the research for it and it was quite hard for me to do that because 20 years ago i didn't speak any greek at all so i could only read things written in english but there were two things that I kind of came across about it. And one of them was that they had their own satirical newspaper on the island, which I just thought was such a... It just, I thought, well, if you have a satirical newspaper, then A, you've got a sense of humour, you've got people there who mm. want to write, you've got storytellers, you've got some events. You know, I thought, God, that's, that's somehow a real normality. And then the other thing was that they showed films. You know, they, they had a, a kind of some kind of cine reel set up so they could go somewhere and watch films together. And that was the second thing I thought, wow, you know, that that's two things that sound really quite normal. I thought that this place was somewhere that people didn't just go to die, but they went there to live. Mm. And many of them lived there for you know, 10 or 20 years, because leprosy, people think, oh, you get it, you know, a little bit perhaps like COVID, and if you can get ill very quickly, and then you die. But with lepros leprosy, is very different. It's very slow. 
developing. Um, so you can have it for a very long time before it actually attacks part of you that will lead to your death. As I've described it, when Eleni, the mother, and Dimitris, the little boy, go there, life in some ways reflects what's happening in the village opposite. Because the truth is that in Crete, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, life was pretty tough for everybody. Mm. You are an ambassador for the charity Lepra, which is a UK charity raising money and awareness of leprosy. And you have sort of touched on this already in that it's still quite a misunderstood condition Mm. and for example i learned from your book in fact that it's curable i don't think i knew that because i it's just not something that's really entered my consciousness very much but also learned from your book that there are an estimated three million people worldwide still living with it so it is obviously Mm. something that is still quite commonplace in other parts of the world compared to other conditions that people might talk about Mm. it's not a very quote-unquote sexy kind of condition which is probably why people don't talk about it so much i wondered how did you come to be a sort of champion of this cause well really because of writing the island and i knew as little about leprosy as as anybody and it was because i when we went to spin just one day on a day trip with family and some friends who we were on holiday with and you know, I was expecting to go to this place that was kind of full of misery because my images of leprosy had come from the film Ben-Hur, you know, when you've literally got people who did figures, you know, clanging bells. And it was almost with a ghoulish sense of curiosity that I went there and then thought this is odd because it doesn't feel, I'm not getting a sort of dark vibe from this place at all. So then I did some research into leprosy and, you know, understood that it was a, it's basically a dermatological condition. That's how it begins. It, it attacks the nerve endings under the skin so that you, your hand, feet, whichever part of the body, go completely numb. And that's where the sort of deformities that we associate with it happen because it, in places where people are still walking long distances to get their water or they're cooking over an open fire, they might injure themselves and not feel a thing because it's anaesthetised that part of the body. And that's how you get the sort of great damage that can happen to the body because if you don't notice that, you know, your skin is very burned, then you get... Infection set in. Exactly. So... The reason that leprosy still exists at all is because of the stigma surrounding it, you know, which is, that's almost like the disease now, is the stigma. And it's also stuck because very often, after a long time, people can, you know, get these very cruel facial disfigurements um, because it can attack, let's say, the inside of a friend of mine in Crete was a leprosy patient and he sort of lost the sort of the inside of his nose the kind of ligaments the, mm. the soft tissues um, and it changed the shape of his ears you very often lose every hair on your body so people with leprosy can look um, very strange and that again creates this all oh, this like 
fear. And, you know, it's a terrible thing to be treated like that. It's unimaginably cruel. So what still happens, and this is mostly now in in, um, the sort of rural and much poorer parts of India and Bangladesh, those are the places where there is still leprosy, some in South America, but predominantly the sort of Indian, you know, Bangladesh particularly. And in those rural communities, there's a lot of illiteracy still. It's quite hard to reach those people and educate. Um, And they're the ones that if they thought that they had leprosy, rather than coming forward, as you or I would, if we thought we had, you know, any other kind, you know, some cancer or TB or whatever it is, we would come forward Mm. um, and ask for help. But what happens instead is almost the reverse in some of these situations, that people hide away and avoid being diagnosed because they're afraid of how they're going to be treated. So lepra, they train doctors and fund doctors to go out into these rural communities to diagnose and treat and you know the last year has been very challenging because of covid because people have not been able to come for diagnosis they've been you know in in india especially not able to to come forward for their treatment so you know things are getting better generally but there's been a, a setback but there's around 300,000 new cases a year still being diagnosed so it's obviously far too many and um, it's very curable. While you were writing this book, the world was hit by another terrible illness, which is, of course, COVID. And mm. I wondered if that had given the story greater resonance in a way. Yeah, I think the story has sort of another level of meaning, perhaps now. You know, the general story of leprosy and the cure and the way we've had to treat people who had the symptoms of of COVID is very like it was for leprosy. You know, it's not, it it wasn't the wrong thing to put people in isolation because before we had any kind of vaccination, there wasn't really any other choice unless we said to people, stay in your homes, don't give it to other people. It was going to sweep through the whole of our society. So, Um, definitely I think the children who read this book or have it read to them will recognise, you know, certain words like isolation, which probably wouldn't have meant anything a year and a half ago. I think there's certainly going to be lots of children who, who read it who might have lost a grandparent this year. You know, we've lost so many elderly people in the last year that for many children that will be the first loss that they've encountered. And the mother, Eleni, who who dies of leprosy, you know, that's at a point when her children are across the water. They, they can't be with her. They just hear that she's died. And that's, I think, not going to be an unfamiliar experience mm. for some of the young readers, unfortunately. Looking at other children's books around and the ones that children read I mean they I'm amazed how central some of these themes are in in young literature literature for young people well because you are an ambassador for the National Literacy Trust as well Hmm. and 
you know, some of the themes, some of the things the book discusses is quite hard hitting. I wondered if you had any thoughts on how we talk to children about these things. Uh, you know, are, are we are we doing it well? Or could we be doing it better? <laughs> I'm sure we can always be doing everything better. I mean, the National Literacy Trust does amazing work to put books into children's hands and at the same time being aware that there are you know many children who are growing up without books in the house and children have other ways of learning things about life but books are sometimes a sort of gentler introduction to the hard facts of life than perhaps if a child just encounters mm. death for the first time you know if they've read about it or had a story read to them I think that, you know, that prepares children. It's like sort of, I don't know, just sort of putting lots of soil inside from which things can grow and it happens a bit more organically. I mean, it's probably really hard for you and I to imagine ever, you know, I can see books on your shelf. I mean, we've all grown up, you know, you and I have grown up with books and, you know, we're very lucky. We obviously, most of us take that for granted, but a lot of children are still you know, growing up without a book in the house. And, and books, they, they do much more than entertain, especially through stories, as much as for children as for adults, actually. Stories are a way of sort of trying to understand the world and to experience things that you might never encounter firsthand, but, it you know, it teaches you empathy and a kind of understanding. It, it works with the, the head and the heart. Yeah, National Literacy Trust is a really invaluable organisation and you know, tirelessly works to, in a very practical way, get books to children and to adults who, who haven't learned to read. Again, unimaginable for a lot of us, but a reality for many people. I mean, I guess what books do is they kind of they make your world a bit bigger, don't they? They do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can travel with a book. You know, right now, a lot of us haven't had any other opportunity to go anywhere except in our imaginations. And But it's it's not a bad substitute. You know, you really can be taken to another country by a book and explore it and kind of imagine the, the tastes and the smells and the sounds and the whole, you know, the five senses can, our imagination at work, introduce us to many new things. It's a really beautiful book and it's illustrated beautifully by Jill Smith. Do you want to tell me a little bit about, about Jill and, and how that sort of came about? Absolutely. Jill Smith is, for me, a stunningly talented illustrator. It's actually the first book that she's illustrated, which is extraordinary given the kind of quality and the, the sort of emotional impact that her pictures have, because I couldn't really imagine how she would do it and yet the first one I saw was the front cover and she absolutely captures that sort of innocence and purity of the character and but also the authenticity of, of Crete the place and she there was a, a little window it's hard to imagine now a window last August when she and I were in Crete together she came out to Crete and she'd never been to Greece before and she wanted to make sure that what she was illustrating, the details were very true to the place. And every little detail in this book is 
sort of to me very very real and authentic because she kind of spent days there you know she went to spin along several times and you know felt the atmosphere looked at the buildings and then we went to some museums together like folk museums where they have you know the old kitchen implements and icons and embroidery so all the little visual details of people's clothing um sort of what their interiors look like are all kind of very much as they would have been but Jill's drawn them with a with a great sort of emotional love of the place because she did absolutely fall in love with the whole island I think for me they 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 couldn't be better I'm sort of proud of it without having really created it <laughs> well I mean I, I think you'd need to give yourself some credit here Victoria but um, yeah, a little bit but the yeah. pictures are what really do it <laughs> I think Adults and children alike will, will love looking through it. Maria's Island is published on June the 3rd by Walker Books. Where can we follow what you're up to and what's coming next? I have a Facebook page, which is usually full of pictures of Greece. And I'm not a very active tweeter, but I do sometimes. But mostly Facebook and on my website, Victoria Hislop. Victoria, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Wendy Hyde, Chair of City of London's Corporation Culture, Heritage and Libraries Commission. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Hannah. And also Virginia Rowding, Historia. Historian. (laughs) Historia. That was like a mix between hysteria and historian. Like that sometimes. <laughs> we are here to talk about the Celebrating City Women initiative. But just before we did, I just wanted to ask you, Wendy, one of the last interviews I did in the real world was with Cassie Pierce about your Enchanting Interiors exhibition. Oh, yes. Which looked fantastic. And I know that you had all piled a huge amount of work into, including Cassie. And then, but a few weeks later, the entire world shut down. I mean, obviously, the throat clearing thing of lots of people have had it way, way worse. But last year must have been quite a disappointing and frustrating year for you in some respects. It was very disappointing for people who put a lot of work into setting things up. They did do a wonderful virtual tour of that exhibition. Yes. I really have got to hand it to the team because they switched really very quickly to doing virtual events on a website called Our City Together. And if you haven't had a look at it and you like history, do look. I mean, it's the most amazing collection of things. A lot of talks about individual women in history, but also a whole lot of other things from, you know, pictures of the city's empty streets and tours around the virtual exhibition at the Art Gallery. And I think people put a lot of energy and enthusiasm into that to uh, help brighten the, the dull spots of people's lives at home. Yeah. And we hope we won't have lost all that that you know, everybody's learned some lessons from this. We had huge outreach. Amazing numbers of people mm. watch London Metropolitan Archives explanations of you know, how to conserve your documents from around the world, not just around the country, I think. And that is really quite an interesting lesson. I think so on all fronts. OK, let's start with the Celebrating City Women initiative. Perhaps if I go to you again, Wendy, if you can just explain the idea behind it. 
If we go back to 2018, before the pandemic, we in the city were looking at a way of celebrating 100 years since at least some women got the vote. And initially there was talk of having a statue of some eminent female, but there were quite a lot of statue projects around at the time. And we had a group partly of artists and experts and partly of members, and we sat around discussing this. Because it would have been possible just to sort of try and pick the most popular, well-known female to have some sort of commemoration. But we decided it would be much more interesting to investigate the groups of women who were not so well-known. And round the table, a lot of us had some suspicion that there were women who'd been very actively engaged in business, particularly through livery companies. And in those days, livery companies were important because they gave people their license to trade and they also set the standards and they did the training of apprentices. There's a sort of feeling that women joining livery companies is a very sort of modern thing. But in fact, it is not the case. And if you go back to sort of 1300s onwards, you can see that there were women actively engaged in all sorts of businesses. So we didn't know much about this at the time, but we suspected it to be true. We therefore commissioned Virginia to do a piece of work to see what we could find out. And I was really excited by the results because it proved to be so worthwhile that we've unearthed all these amazing stories. A lot of people can hardly believe. And it sort of brings to the forefront a whole part of our history that has just been lost. And Virginia will probably have better views than I have on this, but I think it's partly because women didn't get involved in running livery companies. You can see boards of past masters in the older ones going back hundreds of years to their formation, no women. And they didn't get involved in running the city of London. So no female common councillors or aldermen or lord mayors. But actually what it turns out is they were quietly getting on with it mm-hmm. and doing some really very surprising business. I love the fact that there were two of them who were bell founders and that there are still 20 bells with their mark on. And this is going back to what the 1400s. Wow. And if you can think of anything much less feminine than <laughs> bell founding, you know, you can well imagine people saying, oh, not at all suitable thing for women to do. But they were right there doing it. Virginia, can you elaborate? What I found particularly interesting was that the overall sort of parameters of the project were less about picking out individual unusual stories as a sense of all the people involved, the number of women, and the fact that these were, on the whole, the kind of people that one would know in one's own family history, and that's they're not necessarily the famous, the weird. I do like things like finding where there was a female pugilist and that sort of thing. She's my um, favourite. <laughs> but but just elaborating a bit on what Wendy was saying about livery companies, a lot of the work that I ended up doing was looking at lists, which doesn't sound very glamorous, but you're looking behind the list all the time because the reason that women were largely disappeared out of history were that they were subsumed by their husbands or fathers' names. So if a woman had the freedom of the company, on marriage, the man acquired it and his name wanted them in the list. And the women would not become livery men, but they would be free of the company, what we now call free men. And so you don't see them immediately, but you can find them when you start looking behind the obvious information. So if you're looking at, say, a list of people who became apprentices to a company, even though the majority might be boys, you would find that 
the master to whom they were being apprenticed was a woman. That's what I thought was really interesting, that the sense that all these stories were there waiting to be discovered. And so then in terms of putting together a, a sort of readable document about this and then letting it lead on to things like the documentary, also one had to then select individual stories from among that, because just a list of people's names doesn't really get people too excited. So then I looked at different groups of, of women. So all the medical ones are really interesting. There's the early doctors, administrators, people in charge of hospitals. And again, so often in the history, they disappear because if you look further back, absolutely vital role was played in the city by midwives mm. who so many people into the world and were hugely valued, but always referred to in, it would say, the midwife, the midwife. It, didn't, it tended not to say midwife so-and-so, whereas the, a doctor might have his name. So you, you never know who they are. But then you can you start finding out if you look at records of churches where they have to go to be licensed. Mm. So you can piece them together. Lawyers, bankers, investors, there were so many of them. And I, I think what's interesting is that I think we've just touched the tip of an iceberg here. The obvious question is, why were women vanished from history? And there were about 75 different answers. And it's really clear. If we go back to Elizabeth Stokes, who's the pugilist that you mentioned, you actually do... Oh, we've been invaded by a cat. I'm sorry. We, <laughs> we, you actually do say in it that you, you don't know what happened to her. You don't, you don't know. You only get a flash of her. In fact, I believe it's you that says it in the documentary. And part of the reason for that is obviously was a woman, but also it's that poverty and class plays into this. And and doing my own research, my own family tree, my family's only been literate for like 100 years. And seeing how little control over your life that illiteracy gave you that I hadn't even thought of, such as they didn't even have control over how their names were spelled. Mm-hmm. So I have great-grandparents that have a different spelling on every official document because their name was essentially what the guy who was paid to write it down or the priest, what they decided that their name was, that was their name. And it staggers me that even even though I knew that illiteracy would play a huge role, it it wasn't until I actually looked at what one of my great-grandmothers is like listed by seven different names. Every kid she had, she has a different name on the document. Yeah, so it's so hard to build a written history from that. You're right, there are so many reasons for it. Can I ask who the person that really leapt out at you was? Who of all the women that you've discovered is is a genuine favourite? Do you you have one, Wendy? My Bell founders that I think are just fantastic and so unexpected. And I suppose the other group of women, we've been talking about the, the older, more historic ones, but the other group of women are the ones that came through in the 19th century, pushing for recognition and standard qualifications that they weren't allowed to take. And I do like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who's Mm. well known. But when you actually hear a bit more about her story, and she really (laughs) struggled. Virginia's cat has now now bonded to (laughs) his meeting as well. I can double with cats here. Um, Sort of struggle. She had to get qualified. I think she had to go to France. So she learned French before she went. So she could get into yeah. the medical school where they were a bit more tolerant. So um, but also that initially she qualified with the Society of Apothecaries because they hadn't they had omitted to have a rule forbidding women because it hadn't occurred to them that they needed to. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. so she was allowed to take the exam. But I believe they stopped stopped women after that for a while. Yes, yeah, they did. They realised they'd left this loophole. 
I mean, I'm a huge lesson of determination, yeah. you know, finding the way through the apothecaries, learning French and going to France to do the sort mm. of practical work in the hospitals where they were a bit more tolerant. And the, the lady chartered accountant who you know, worked as an accountant all her life and finally was recognised when she was 75, <laughs> having had a lifetime career, Mary Harris Smith. You know, I think there are a lot of lessons in determination of not being told that you can't do things. Yeah. Absolutely. Another key reason, another case in point here, Charlotte Foreman, yes. the journalist. The reason yes. nobody oh, yes. knows yes. who she was is because she didn't yes. write under her real name, because she couldn't write under her real name. Exactly. And and there were an awful lot of writers and publishers in particular, all, all around that area, around St Paul's Churchill, where many of them were congregated, and, and women who carried on, who were wid- widows, who carried on their late husband's business, or did it in their own right. And sort of really radical. Another thing I found interesting was the number of city men who took advantage of the wealthy widow too. It was a way to become Lord Mayor. It's a pretty expensive thing. It is now and it was then. And a way of acquiring both influence and money was to marry a rich widow or possibly two if you kind of got through the first one. Another one I liked was Florence Peake, who worked for the post office, who was a suffragette, and who got sent to prison for taking part in suffragette activities. And the post office didn't sack her, but she had to use her annual leave. (laughs) (laughs) That's really tickled me, and I don't know why. (laughs) Going back to the point I made earlier about class, Some women's lives are more hidden than others. Race will intersect with that. So I wondered if you could talk a bit more about how you've tried to sort of find a a, a relatively diverse bunch of women to focus on. There is another piece of work that we did, which was trying to find out the background of diverse women. The trouble is, white British women haven't left much history. And although we are aware that there were people who came from either the West Indies or from India, Pakistan, as it now is, they're even less likely to have left any record because they were regarded as completely non-people, which is horrifying Mm. by today's standard. But we've got in the film, you'll have seen Phyllis Wheatley. Yeah. Who came from Senegal as a child and was then eventually became a poet, but because she was adopted into a wealthy family and they were able to push her talents, and she wanted to get published, and Selena Hastings was behind this. But, I mean, that must have been very rare if it was somebody who was just working as a a servant in a household Mm. without somebody, a a wealthy sponsor. They disappear without trace. Mm. But I think one of the interesting things that comes out of of Virginia's paper is that the the leads it gives for people to do some further work. Mm. I mean, I've been making in a way, the mistake of talking about the more modern women, the names that we recognise. But if you go back to the silk women, and we have Alice Claver in the film, that was apparently a whole industry. They had shops and they traded. And it would be quite an interesting piece of work to to look at where they were in the city. The useful thing to come out of this project is bringing it to the public view work that has already gone on because there have been some scholars who've worked extensively on the silk women and others other groups that really haven't been known about much outside 
gender history and, and, and small pockets of people interesting in, interested in this sort of thing. So Anne Sutton's done a lot of work on the silk women and, and Caroline Barron. Back on the, the diversity question, yes, it's, it is difficult because you, it's an extra layer of, of difficulty, of hiddenness. And of course, one is aware of that. We just have to keep on plugging away at it. But I, I found that well, there's some interesting Jewish women to be found, partly because the synagogues have always kept very good records. One of the women that I found very interesting was a miniaturist, Catherine da Costa, who um, painted beautiful miniatures, having having learnt from um, a male artist. This was, uh, she lived 1679 to 1756, and her father was a, a merchant. And they, when she married, she lived off London Wall that also had a house in Highgate Hill. So I, I think that the number of people who are musicians and artists um, is is really interesting and, and worth looking more at. It reminds me a bit of how um, recently on, on Radio 3 there's been a deliberate seeking out of women composers mm. because they've been there, but we haven't tended to listen to them or have been recorded. You are also looking for people to suggest hidden yeah. women for you. Mm. So... Can I ask sort of what the criteria of that is? I know for a start, you're, you're looking for people who are in the square mile. So maybe it's best to start with a sort of a rough definition of what you mean by that. You mean the old city of London? The square mile is, is still a very clearly defined area. Whether it's exactly a mile, I don't quite know. The, the boundaries alter a little bit over time, but only a little bit. But there needs to be some connection with the square mile. They don't need to have been born there or spent their whole lives there. They might have work there or there needs to be a connection and well, they have made their mark the crime I mean, they could have been convicted in the old bailey or something like that or done their crime <laughs> really interesting resource that i used when i was working on this was london lives have you come across that hannah it's a, it's a re- really interesting collection of stuff um i'm writing that down and it's got a whole load of um, different resources. It includes the Old Bailey records, but a whole lot of other things too. It's particularly about the lives of Londoners who were not rich and famous, very much the other end. So I interrupted you, Wendy, but I just reminded of it because that was quite a good way of finding people who had a connection to the city because they may have been arrested in it or passed through or lived on the edges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, London, like, re- really, really useful. Now, say, for example, I had, I mean, I don't because um, my family's not from, from the city of London, but say, for example, I stumbled across my great grandmother who had done something interesting. Is that something that you are looking for or are you looking for something that's got a bit more research behind it when you are asking for suggestions? If you've got something interesting, <laughs> by all means, nominate your great grandmother and you can do that through the, the website. The other thing is we're looking for people who've been dead for 10 years so that that sort of puts it in slightly into the history box. But it can be anything. We are looking at the question of blue plaques. The city has its own range of blue plaques. We've just, through City Arts Initiatives, taken ownership of the blue plaque nomination process, because I think it was previously largely dependent on people outside saying, well, we'd like to do this. Mm. And it's much easier for people if they can put it on their own building, because that saves a stage of bureaucracy. For instance, I think the Institute of Chartered Accountants have just, within the last year, put up a plaque to Mary Harris Smith. I believe has happened and not been caught by the pandemic. 
But Wendy, can I ask you about celebrating city women is kind of a twofold thing. We've been talking about the past. There is kind of a present aspect to it mm. as well. You have an artist in resident, Hannah Starkey, yeah. who's been out taking photographs of women now in the streets of London. Yes, it went alongside as part of the centenary project. Hannah was chosen as the artist in residence because she's got a wonderful uh, record of, of photographs of women. And we were really delighted with what she came up with. It's interesting because they do in a way look as if she's just taken a photograph, but they're not. They're composed. It's a sort of montage. Mm. They really are artistic creations when we reopen again and uh, if you get a chance to see them. They really are fascinating because you, you sort of look at it at one level and then you think, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's one I particularly like, which is of a business reception. There are all the receptionists buzzing about in their suits looking, you know, yeah. And then behind there's this huge tank of fish in tremendous colour. <laughs> and I, I think it's such a wonderful contrast, the sort of surreal, brilliant turquoise tank and all these fish. Mm. And then the, underneath there's all these the black-suited people. It was all part of acknowledging the great contribution that women artists have to make. And it, it was part of the year, and I mean part of our future, I trust, that the art gallery bought a couple of works by women artists and they're focusing more on their collection and on future exhibitions to make sure you know we have this great celebration sculpture in the city have you come across that no every year there's a sort of oh well I can sort of forgive you if you're in Cambridge but only just (laughs) I haven't been allowed out of Cambridge for about a year to be fair oh well yes sculpture in the city is a great artistic event that the city runs every year where we have works that are loaned to us and that are around in the streets. And with that, there's been far more focus on making sure, I think the last installation of new works, it was 50-50 male and female artists. And that was done consciously. I'm not quite sure we'll be launching this one in about a couple of months. June, I think, last year was a bit dormant for reasons you'll understand. Now, there's an interesting point. Virginia, we're always living through history, but I don't think people necessarily realise we're living through history until we have a major event like we had last year. From the point of view of a historian, what do you think that we need to be doing now to make sure that women are seen in a way that people in the future will be able to know what the female experience was during the pandemic? That's an interesting question. I don't have any doubt that there'll be plenty of stories because people are very much recording. I mean, today is diary day, isn't it? I, I heard that on the radio this morning. Is Everyone it? being encouraged to write a diary today and to send it off. I forget to where, but I know that the Today programme said send them there as well. And I think the very fact that people are continually using social media and writing and documenting their lives we have to make sure there are strategies for not losing it. The work of future historians actually is going to be much more about sifting and deciding what to use and evaluating than looking for material because it's all there. I, I think in a way, even the work of historians looking at the past now, so much information is available, fixing buttons. And what we have to learn to do is not to be so overwhelmed by the amount of it that we don't know what to do with it. Mm. I think I think the skills that we need to be learning and trying to teach have to do with selection 
but not letting a voice because it's loud, whichever gender, be heard because it's loud, but find, measure, evaluate what is most representative and the check that we are covering all the diversity elements because it, it will always be harder for minorities to be heard and we've got to keep listening. I think our challenge is almost the reverse of what it used to be, that there's not much out there. There's so much. Wendy, where can people find out more about Celebrating City Women? Oh, well, it's all on the website, which is celebratingcitywomen.co.uk. Easy peasy. That has the documentary film that uh, you've obviously watched, but it does pull a lot of the strands of the, the work together. But it does also have Virginia's full paper and various other pieces of work. And if people want to nominate uh, women for uh, inclusion in future projects, then that can all be done there as well, I think. Thank you both <laughs> ever so much for your time. It's been really interesting. Good. Thank you. Now then, clearly we give you loads of stuff for your ears. And if you haven't already, you really should, one, hit subscribe so fresh aural delights are waiting for you. And two, have a fertile through our back catalogue of more than 500 podcasts. But what about your eyes? Well, dear listener, you too can be a dear reader simply by signing up for our weekly newsletter, The Bush Telegram. And yes, it is a clever play on The Bush Telegraph. Thanks for noticing. Me, Hannah and Jen take it in turns to chart bits of news that didn't make it into the pod, articles you might fancy checking out, daft YouTube videos our chats have reminded us of, and, in my case, links to cats that ski. That's right, skiing cats. Who doesn't want that in their life? It is well easy to sign up. Just visit our website, standardissuepodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom and pop your email address in the box. Then just wait for some class reading material to hit your inbox each Wednesday. Bingo bongo. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we throw our racket in disgust as we discuss all things women's sport. And that was, of course, a reference to the French Open, which, as we discussed last week, we are now in the midst of. I'm recording this on Tuesday morning, annoyingly, because I had already recorded it on Monday, but then it all kicked off and, well, the rest is history. So it would be a bit daft to go on at length about the results since we've only had two days of action and by the time you hear this on Wednesday, the picture may already look rather different as we get into the second round. But what can I tell you after the first two days? One big shock, Angelique Kerber was kicked out in the first round by Ukraine's Helena Kalinina. That is quite the tongue twister. Yes, Big Angelique, 26 seed, three times Grand Slam winner Kerber, kicked out by 139th in the world, came in through qualifying, which, listener, that means she didn't have the necessary points to automatically qualify, and Helena Kalinina. I'll just labour over that name unnecessarily again for fun. A couple of other significant upsets. Joe Conta, 19th seed, was knocked out on day two by Romania's Serana Costia. Though Conta generally doesn't do so well at the French Open, and to be fair, she's not done that well in anything for a couple of years now. Elsewhere, sixth seed Bianca Andreescu fell foul of Slovenia's Tamara Zidansek. 
on her third crack at the French Open and one-time winner of the French Open and 12th seed Garbanier Muguruza was beaten in straight sets in her worst ever performance at Roland Garros by 18-year-old Marta Kostiuk. So yes, upsets, but that is as ever the way of the unpredictable women's draw. However, the big story dominating over in Paris over the last few days has been four times Grand Slam winner Naomi Osaka and a row over protecting the mental health of athletes. You've probably already seen that Osaka withdrew from the tournament on Monday evening, hence why I'm re-recording this, and this followed on from her announcement ahead of the tournament that she would not, as she is contractually obliged and indeed are all participants, speak to the media after her matches. Her reason for this, she said in a statement posted on social media, was to protect her mental health. She said she couldn't understand why athletes were placed in a situation in which they were asked questions we've been asked multiple times before, or questions that bring doubt into our minds, and added that she would not subject herself to people that doubted her. From the statement, she obviously understood that she'd be fined, and she said that she hoped the money would be donated to a mental health charity. Well, fined indeed Naomi was, to the tune of $15,000 after she declined to partake in the post-match press conference after her first round victory against Patricia Maria Tigg. But more than that, the four Grand Slams then came together threatening more substantial fines and future Grand Slam suspensions if the media boycott were to continue. The fact that the four Grand Slams issued a joint statement is quite a big deal. A day later, Anasaka had quit the tournament altogether, stating that she never imagined or intended becoming the talking point of the tournament for that media boycott. For her own well-being and the sake of the other tennis players, she said she had decided to withdraw altogether to avoid distracting further from the tournament. In the statement issued again via her social media channels, Osaka revealed that she had suffered long bouts of depression since the US Open in 2018, a Grand Slam which she was the winner of, and as well as that she had experienced social anxiety and found media obligations of the tour to be pretty hard going because of that. She added that the timing of her original announcement, which she said could have been clearer, was not ideal, and that after making it she had written privately to the tournament offering to speak with them afterwards, she said she would now take a break from tennis and that she hoped to work with the tour in the future to improve the situation for players, press and fans. First of all, I think it's important to say that this is a really bold message and I I hate the overuse of brave in anything when we're discussing mental health, but Osaka isn't obliged to give us all chapter and verse on her mental or physical health, but I think it's great that she has done because it's always really helpful when known, so to speak, people are able to do this. It's a reminder that mental health problems do not discriminate. It's really awful to think that an 18-year-old, as she was at the time of her first Grand Slam victory, was suffering so much, but in some ways it's, you know, a bit unsurprising really. Tennis is an extremely intense sport and the pressures are immense. If I'm honest, I think the handling of this on all sides has been regrettable. I don't think this should have been the outcome. The various Grand Slam organisers and the WTA have come in for quite a lot of criticism, which I also think is a bit unfair. I can see why the tournament organisers came down so hard on her. The fact of the matter is that the game needs press coverage and especially the women's game and and that's why the athletes are contractually obliged to promote the tournaments in which they participate and press conferences are part of those obligations. I think it's hard to be overly critical of the Grand Slam organisers or the governing bodies if they were not, as Osaka's statement appears to corroborate, party to all of the facts. But it is also worth noting that she's not the only athlete to criticise the way that the media treats them or indeed the only tennis player, Joe Conta, for example, took umbrage with a reporter being harsh, as she put it, to her during Wimbledon in 2019. Full disclosure, I did not agree with Conta then and 
I don't agree with her now. I don't think it is the job of journalists to bolster players' egos. But that doesn't mean that I can't empathise with the fact that journalists do sometimes ask stupid questions, personal questions, irrelevant questions, or that it could be difficult to sit and dissect a game that you've just lost in front of a global audience. I also think it's worth considering that sports journalism is dominated by white men. Then there's the ever unhelpful trope used against women, but especially women who are not white, that if they do not go along with what they've been asked to do, then they're somehow difficult. It's undeniably true that women receive harsher judgment by society and the media, and that if you're not white, that is heightened further. And friend of the podcast, Carrie Dunn, has written a very good article about this for TennisMajors.com, which I'll tweet a link to as well if you want to read that. I do think that we are, as a society, extremely harsh on athletes, and that often very little consideration is given to their mental health. But it seems to me that there must be a better compromise for everyone involved in order to make the experience better for athletes, or perhaps more support could be provided. But it doesn't just stop with the media or the tournaments organisers and governing bodies. It's a point that I feel I come back to quite a lot and perhaps I'm a bit biased because I am a journalist but it does often feel that there's a bit of a disconnect between the media, its subjects and the people who consume it. It only gets written about if we read it. It's very much a supply and demand situation and if we think that Naomi Osaka has a point then we need to look at what we're consuming and I'm probably preaching to the choir a bit here as standard issue listeners but changing the media is at least partially within our gift. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Now, you're listening to this, you won't be able to see that I've actually paid to have someone do the worst animation of two morbidly obese cherubs, which are absolutely terrifying, (laughs) bringing the Rated or Dated sign down. But yes, Mickey, which film that gave me, frankly, the heebie-jeebies in the first two minutes of it, did we watch this week? This week, we watched The Parent Trap. And by that, I mean the Walt Disney 1961 Hayley Mills, Hayley Mills original, not the Walt Disney 1998 Lindsay Lohan, Lindsay Lohan remake. I say original. This Parent Trap is itself based on a 1945 movie called Twice Blessed. I very much think that's up to the parent to decide, isn't it? (laughs) In short, it is the tale of two entertaining little pricks giddily manipulating their parents who have been divorced for 12 years back into what's clearly an abusive relationship while giving their dad's current fiancé a nervous breakdown. I mean, she is an utter cowbag, but then again, she is a woman in this film. More on that later. Before that, I would like to apologise again to my mum for the time I crept downstairs and filled her then-boyfriend's shoe with marmalade. Being a child of divorce can be tricky, but still, at 27, I should have known better. (laughs) I jest. I was seven and getting revenge after, in a misconceived attempt to bond with me, he dunked me fully clothed in a bath of cold water. Dating a divorced parent can be tricky. Anyway, let's talk twins, mischief and romance. Hayley Mills plays both Sharon McKendrick and Susan Evers. Identical twins sent in different directions... Sharon to Boston with Mum Maggie, played by a first-fuck Maureen O'Hara, and Susan to California with Dad Mitch, played by Brian Keith, rocking that very peculiar brand of mid-19th-century Hollywood handsomeness. Sharon and Susan don't know the other exists until, age 13, they meet at summer camp, and after a half-hour preamble establishing they hate each other, they work out what's happened and become firm friends with a plan to get Mum and Dad back together again, starting with a switch. Sharon chops her hair off and heads to California as Susan, while Susan gets bonding with her mum in Boston as Sharon. What could possibly go wrong? 
Well, turns out Mitch has fallen for Vicky, played by Joanna Barnes, a younger woman not so much smitten with the size of Mitch's barrel chest, but with his bank balance. This rebound, after 12 years, must be stopped at all costs because it sorely messes with the teenager's theory that their parents have remained single since their divorce because, quote, that's how true love creates its beautiful agony. Fuck me, literature has a lot to answer for. I mean, it's not questioned by this film-like, which wholeheartedly agrees. It turns out Maggie, at least, has never got over Mitch. And after being massively gaslighted by her dad about her clothing, she goes shopping for shiny new duds, then jumps on a plane with Susan to get the family back together. She immediately turns from demure society bird to Catty Harridan as soon as she meets Mitch's fiance, and also proceeds to punch Mitch in the face for no real reason, meaning he has a black eye for the rest of the film. Not cool, Maggie. Very much not cool. <laughs> well, there is a reason, but we'll get to that. It's not a good reason. No, the reason is Maureen O'Hara. That's just what happens in Maureen O'Hara films. Fair enough. But for what it is worth, I am totally team Mitch in this film and think he'd be better off with one of his horses than either of these women. Anyway, Vicky's not impressed by Maggie showing up looking a million dollars, despite being described as maternal and mature by Mitch, who is also somewhat surprised that at the colossal age of 41, his ex can be both of those and still a fucking knockout. No domestic violence pun intended. Vicky leaves in a polite huff. The twins, meanwhile, start a plotting and recreate mum and dad's first date. From what, 14, 15 years ago? To reignite a spark they assure remains. Maggie and Mitch just end up fighting. Not to be thwarted, the twins refuse to say which one is which until everyone's been on a camping trip, because sure, why not? Maggie bails at the last minute, the twins terrorise Vicky with lizards and near drowning and some hungry bears until Vicky, understandably, fucks off. And also, understandably, Mitch doesn't seem that fussed. Then, obviously, Mitch and Maggie end up snogging over the stew she's made in his kitchen. The end. Despite the sentimental ending, this is surprisingly unsaccharine fair, and while there are a lot of dated gender roles at play, it is playful and funny, and Mitch and Maggie's subtly saucy antics are reminiscent of a 1940s screwball comedy. Also, at 60 years old, the film was somewhat ahead of its time in tackling the subject of divorce at all. Although, like Maggie, it, well, indeed, like Maureen O'Hara, as Hannah's going to tell us, it doesn't pull its punches and wears its divorce is bad credentials very much on its sleeve. Bless this broken home, reads the sign right at the start. And I imagine a lot of divorced parents had to explain to their kids that it's actually really very unlikely that if you follow a breakup through to legal proceedings, you're going to get back together. 12 years later. Mm. Technically, the stuff with Mills in two roles is pretty fucking seamless. I do mm. come to this Great. fresh from the craft's terrible special effects, but still, yeah. don't take my word for it. The twin interaction was only meant to happen for a few scenes, but when Walt Disney, the man, not the company, saw how good it was, he demanded more. And I've got to say, Mills is excellent at playing against herself who isn't there. 60 years on, The Parent Trap still has 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, pipping its Lohan remake by 4%. So, had either of you seen this two-hour, ten-minute treat before? It's so fucking yeah. long. It's so long, and it felt yeah. long. Oh. And I was like, God, there's a whole other camping trip coming now. <laughs> it was like they could have ended it at the end of that dinner and just wrapped it up there, but then a whole other camping trip happens. No, I'd never seen it before, or the remake. I just want to say, I saw a tweet the other day that said, normalise making one hour, 40 minute films, and I am here for it. Oh, and totally. Yeah. 90 minutes yeah. is the right length. Bang on. 
Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Yeah. I think I have seen it before because Hayley Mills is Crispian Mills of Cooler Shaker fame's mum. And we used to tease my brother that he looks like Crispian Mills. And I remember seeing this and then teasing him that he looked like Hayley Mills. She was quite the Disney stalwart as well. She made six films with Disney. And I'd seen it loads because it seemed to always be on over summer holidays. Maybe it was just done once and it's just really fucking long and that's why it feels like I've seen it a lot. (laughs) I agree that the effects are... I would use the word incredible given that they are 60 Mm. years old. Yeah, yeah, they look tremendous. Playing two roles must have been really hard for her. She's basically in every scene in one form or the other. I mean, her accent work is terrible. Um, I I wouldn't say it was a truly excellent performance, but it's spirited. It's, yeah, she's doing her best. So credit to her for that. Maureen O'Hara, just FYI, Maureen O'Hara was my granddad's favourite. My granddad Dunleavy's favourite because I think because she was Irish and she's like an Irish woman who got off and done. Beautiful. She's not bad looking as well. And also beautiful, yeah. But she had a tendency to play like, I don't know, people would use the word feisty or spunky or whatever, women who were not afraid to like punch a man in the face. So yeah, that does seem like a... Something that they're like, oh, it's Maureen O'Hara, let's get her to punch him as well, rather than it was necessarily written into the plot. But what I don't understand is how any child could ever sit in a room with those two people and want them to be together forever. Right? Because they they hate each other. Yeah, they really do. I think the women characters, the grown-up women, are awful. All of them are awful. Maggie's awful. Yeah. Her mum's awful. Vicky's awful. She's supposed to be the only one we don't like, but I don't like any of them. And even Verbena, who is the housekeeper, is causing problems by being a right old gossip. Just feels like they're caricatures mm. of women. I didn't oh, mind Maggie. No, no shit. I mean, my favourite character in it is the priest. That bit where he's just sitting back getting pissed, watching watching everything go on, having a lovely time. I was like, yeah, he's the, he's the guy I'd have a conversation with out of all of them in the room, which is unusual. Jen, you said you, you didn't mind Maggie. I didn't mind her. I, I mean, like, like everything about it is implausible and ill-advised. Like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's ill-advised in the first place to get these two girls who are warring. Let's put them in the same, like, dorm, tent, camp thing and see what happens. Like, yeah. I thought that was a bold move, like, right from the outset. <laughs> but isn't it really weird that they meet someone that looks like them and then they hate them? That's actually literally the opposite right. of human behaviour. So I've also, I've also written down here, because it's something I've heard, but then I've... Well, what I believe I've heard people say before, but I mean, I don't know how this explains identical twins, to be fair, is um, aren't you supposed to die if you meet someone who looks <laughs> identical to you? I mean, I guess if you're identical twins, then it's like already explained. But if you like just from nowhere meet your doppelganger, it's supposed to kill you. I think Jen's still stuck in last week's rated or dated. <laughs> I think she is. I can't give you a source of evidence for this. This is just something that people... I've definitely heard people say. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I don't need evidence for that, Jen. That just sounds true. It sounds very plausible. <laughs> exactly. Let's just say yes. Exactly. Can we talk about how basically this film comes from what appears to have been a rather horrific social experiment? Let's take a set of identical twins and raise them on two different yes. coasts. It's, yes. I mean, that's not so, even mentioned that that's really quite a horrific thing to do. It's to like horrible. As you're, you're watching it and you're just like, these two people are cunts. Like, <laughs> who would do that? It's like a, such an unnecessarily cruel and torturous thing to do. Like, yeah. 
It also yeah. appears in the, the novel Cain and Abel by Geoffrey Archer, but that's written by Geoffrey Archer, which goes some way to explaining such cunty behaviour. But yeah. yeah, totally. It just is like if they were going to social services or a divorce court and they're going, oh yeah, we've got these twins, we're just going to take one each and never let them know each other. Surely they'd be like, oh no, we're going to take those children so that they can be looked after properly. Yeah. At different ends of the country, you'd just yeah. be like, "Well, I think we'll just we'll just move a couple of streets away from each other and manage like that." And never tell them that they exist. <laughs> never tell them that they exist. It's so weird. Susan makes me laugh because Susan appears to be the Thelma of the pair of them. Susan is the one that she goes about a day before she's like, "Oh, I've got to tell someone," and she tells someone what their plan is. No, that's Sharon. Secrets. Sharon. Oh, yes, which she's playing which? Susan. Sharon is yeah. the posh Boston one, whereas Susan right. is the posh Californian yeah. one. And by Act 3, right. they are the same person. So Sharon, mm. she only lasts about a day before she tells someone, which is like, I mean, even Mary lasts sometimes up to 36 hours before she <laughs> tells a secret. She once said to me, I'm telling you this in confidence because that's how I've told everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Also, in fairness to Sharon, the dog knows something's up. Andromeda yeah. the dog knows that she, she doesn't smell right to him. I, I can understand, perhaps, like, if they genuinely looked exactly the same, which, of course, they did because they're both played by Hayley Mills. Um, if one of them turned up in your house, you might think, oh, she's a bit off, but that's, you know, probably nothing. She's been away for a bit, you know, whatevs. She can't have met a doppelganger, otherwise she'd be dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But if confronted by both of them in the same room, I find it implausible that they wouldn't know which one was which. I'm just going to bring your attention back to their carelessness when it comes to parenting. They're already mm. like, let's just divide and conquer, it's fine. I'm not so keen on Mitch as, as you were. I mean, no. he... Um, I meant it's, it's a low bar and he pips it for me rather than, <laughs> I think he's great. He tells her not to do something because it's like I'm feminine and then he goes, oh, it's the worst part of being yeah. feminine. Pouting. Pouting, yeah. He's wandering around in double denim, looking like <laughs> Steve Zahn and John Wayne have been face-melded. And, yeah, I just found him not very likeable at all. Oh, the ending. The ending. Like, in the kitchen, where the, he's literally got her barefoot in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's from 1961, so yeah. He sees her getting some plates down, and he's like, sexy. <laughs> Everything, like, that's the moment where he's like, no, totally, totally. The thing is, I think he's a better dad than she is a mum. So when <laughs> Susan, Sharon, whichever the fuck, gets back to Boston, she's like, well, I'm out for the day, darling. I'll see you at the weekend. Whereas when the other one gets back to California, he has gone, I'm going to spend the day with my kid. Yeah. yeah. I, I do really like it when right at the start, and I don't, I don't mean like it, I mean it made me laugh, when they, uh, someone from the boys' camp comes over to visit and all the girls give them a man a round of applause for seemingly just being a man. Because <laughs> like, oh, there's a man here. They give him a round of applause. And then he gets up and I wrote down what he says. And he says, it looks like you've got a crackerjack group of girls here. <laughs> and it was the seediest thing in like a children's film that I've ever heard anyone say. I've got to say, it did make me laugh quite a lot. Do you know what? It was too fucking long. But apart from that, I didn't like not enjoy it, if that it's makes sense. I do mm. think I am interested though about the remake because the the commentary of this film is like the idea of like well we're going to get these two people who've been divorced for 12 years as mm. you <laughs> have said Mick back together again because divorce is bad okay 
they're talking about them being hooligans and stuff like this and it's i i don't know like it's so dated the commentary mm-hmm. not to you know don't want to peek too soon here but but like i'm so surprised that someone remade this if it is like exactly the same sort of central themes then i'm really surprised that someone remade this in the 90s it kind of feeds into almost that 50s thing we saw in Rebel Without a Cause, exactly. right? Of like, well, the kids aren't all right because the parents aren't happy. And while there is a kernel of truth to that in most situations, I don't think forcing people who hate each other to get remarried is the way forward. I think the the modern view on this is very much that like the idea of like staying together for the sake of the kids is generally fairly unsuccessful in terms of long-term happiness for people involved yeah it's horrible to see your parents fighting when you're younger and if you have never seen it before it must be horrific particularly when there's violence albeit violence dressed up as comedy i did like the role of female friendship and obviously it is kind of in three acts which is why it is 112 hours long but the first act where they're doing the preamble of the girls hate each other oh wait we're actually we're related the girls who were friends with them in camp are so loyal. And it was so lovely to see like, that the friends just rallied around each other. And they're also very inventive at mischief, which I think quite often is given as a boys thing in films. Whereas actually, obviously, girls can cause just as much horror with some string and some honey and available bears as a boy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think like probably back in the day, although... I don't really have much to base this on because I haven't seen that many children's films from the 1960s. Um, In fairness, Jed, I'm still reeling from meeting your doppelganger means you're dead, so we don't need any science. Just go ahead. (laughs) I'm going to Google that later. I'm going to Google it. (laughs) Yeah, tell me, Jen, if you find any any verifiable news source, I will be interested in reading it. I think there is something about the uncanny, though. I'm going to... Well, you'll, you'll see... Yeah, no, I imagine back in the day that the fact that, like, it is, you know, the central characters are girls and they are, like, quite spunky and mischievous and whatever, like, probably wasn't, like, that common. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I imagine it was, like, relatively progressive in 1961. But we're not in 1961 anymore, Dorothy. So, rated or dated? I just remembered one other thing. Right in the opening sequence in that song, the, there's a line in it that goes, they're much too old for the strap. As wow. <laughs> it's just like, sorry, what now? Anyway, does that answer your question if it's rated or dated? <laughs> You've ruined what I was going to do at Mickey's wedding now. <laughs> Sweet Christ in a box. I don't know what's yeah. going on. I don't like it. I think we've got Jen's answer. Hannah, what about you? Yeah, I'm really torn because I really, really want to say that I believe that the technical aspects of it absolutely stand up. Mm -hmm. Like, really. But we have had that conversation. We had that conversation a lot when we did the dystopia films that actually pre-special effects, special effects, pre-computer special effects were much better. So I do want to say that, but I do find the message that it's better to live with parents who punch each other than not so objectionable that I'm going to have to say dated. It's interesting on the special effects front as well that they've managed to get the twins thing down beautifully and yet they had to green screen them walking through a park. It's just mental. Yeah. (laughs) I had quite an enjoyable time watching it, but it is very, very clearly dated. Hannah, what are we watching next time? I can't imagine that this is going to be dated at all. I can't imagine the effects of this aren't going to require some sort of deep conversation. 
Next week, we're watching 1981's Clash of the Titans, one of the many films that Mary took me to the cinema to see and then slept through. (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women.